Hello, everyone. First of all, I'd love to thank you for tuning in to the Integrative Thoughts podcast. I am your host, Matt Kaufman. And through this platform, I plan on seeking out guests that interest me, that I am curious about, and overall just living a more meaningful, purposeful life in hopes that you as listeners and I myself can grasp onto a little bit of their knowledge and integrate that into our daily lives. Are you having trouble losing weight? Do you get extreme food cravings, especially at night? What about the inability to lose weight even when you cut calories and do a lot of exercise? I know I fell into this category for pretty much most of my life. It's actually probably not even your fault. You most likely have what's called leptin resistance. Leptin is actually a hormone made by the fat cells that regulates food intake and energy expenditure by communicating with the brain. The more fat you have, the more negative leptin messages are actually being sent to your brain. This creates what's called leptin resistance and is going to sabotage all dieting efforts and causes food cravings even when you have enough fat stored. Introducing Zenith, this is an all-new, completely natural formula that gently decreases leptin levels to restore accurate communication between fat cells in the brain. Zenith contains zero harmful stimulants. It's made of all-natural polysaccharides and acetylated fatty acids, very safe for long-term weight loss plans, and it is made in the USA. In an eight-week, university-conducted, double-blind, placebo-controlled study, participants lost 21.3 pounds of fat, lost almost four inches off their waistline, and reduced serum leptin levels by 43%. So if you or someone you know, someone you really love is struggling with weight loss, head down to the show notes. I'll have a link there and a few videos where you can learn more information about Zenith. So listen, I've been experimenting with different types of minerals, especially magnesium, for the past five to six years. But I could never really find a product that I could feel the benefits that magnesium claimed to give. Magnesium is one of the most important minerals for all of human health. It participates in over 600 different biochemical reactions in the body, yet over 80% of the population is deficient. Magnesium deficiency can increase risk for all disease and greatly decrease optimal performance. That's why I like Bioptimizers. They use all seven forms of magnesium in a highly bioavailable form in their product Magnesium Breakthrough. Magnesium helps with stress, anxiety, sleep, immune function, detoxification, and so much more. If you want to try out this product, head over to Buy Optimizers and use code IntegrativeThoughts10 to receive a 10% discount on their amazing product, Mag Breakthrough. Alyssa, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I am doing so well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to just, you know, share some thoughts, hear a little bit more about you, about the show, and offer some, uh, just some, you know, information. Absolutely. Have you ever done podcasts before? I have. I've done a couple. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure. I just, uh, my wife and I have been uh, planning on starting to get pregnant next year. So it's still probably like a year and a half before we plan on having a kid. And uh, she sent me your page a while back. I'm not sure how she stumbled on it. Or uh, I think AJ might have sent it to her, a friend of a fr- or one of our her yeah, mutual yoga it. friend. And um, I was just like, wow, this is incredible. And uh, I didn't even know that they allowed like photos and videos like that even on Instagram. I'm like, they're showing whole babies well, on here. Well, you know, sometimes it, uh, <laughs> sometimes the, the photos or the videos, you know, get taken down 
Um, oh, okay. And there's an uproar in the birthing community where we have to attack Instagram gently. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> I was wondering. I was like, to... these, some of these are like, even though it's like natural and it's birth and it's not like, you know, sexual or anything, I was like, it's still pretty graphic for some people. So I didn't know if you had any issues with that, but that makes a lot of sense. So um, for those who don't know you, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your backstory and how you even landed up in uh, this like field of occupation? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my name is Doula Alyssa. I um, have been a doula officially for almost seven years. And I say officially because there's a training certification program that you go through. Uh, but a little bit, you know, of background before that, you know, I, I think that my whole life, honestly, and I, and I love sharing this story because I, I really feel like my life has unfolded exactly the way that it should and not everyone has the opportunity to find something that they love, something that they feel they're called to do, and then also make an occupation and a career out of it. And so I'm blessed to be able to say that I do that. But um, long story short, because that'd be a whole other podcast episode, um, I just come from a, a background of just trauma and adversity, childhood trauma, childhood adversity, and really stepped up into a maternal role for my little brother and just knew kind of as a little girl that I always wanted to work with moms and babies. Um, and that practice was implemented in the way that I helped and uh, raised my, my little brother, who's several years younger than I am. And then um, I thought that maybe I wanted to go into labor and delivery nursing or, you know, um, NICU nursing and, and another, you know, sort of life events occurring. I had my daughter when I was very young and I just was undereducated and undersupported um, in terms of birthing and realized that had I had someone with me who could advocate for me, who could teach me and show me and protect me, protect my body, my birthing experience would have been different. And so that just solidified the, the internal knowing or that instinctive knowing that I wanted to work with moms and babies, particularly pregnant women. I had always had a deep connection with pregnant women as a little girl and with babies. And as a little girl, that's very strange to say like, Hey, mom. I know this woman is pregnant before you do, or, Hey mom, I want to like sit next to the pregnant ladies at church. Very strange as a little girl, but now I'm like, Oh, of course that's what's, what's happening. And so I had my daughter, I, I went off to school um, all the way through my uh, master's degrees in public health education with a focus in maternal and child health. So I've actually been in the field of maternal and child health for about 12 years now outside of my doula work. And early on in my public health education career with maternal and child health, I um, worked for a, um, a local program federally funded called Healthy Start. And Healthy Start is a program, in short, that just like serves moms and babies. Um, there's a lot of resources provided, a lot of linkage to care. I was a case manager. I went to people's homes. I was able to provide education support and a lot of resources, uh, tangible resources for these families. And what I found when doing so was that a lot of the families were birthing alone. A lot of the families didn't have the support. A lot of the moms maybe didn't have partners who were there or present. Um, and naturally I built a relationship with a lot of these, a lot of these women. And by nature, I am a connector. It's, it's who I am. It's what I do. And I ended up birthing with them. I ended up starting to attend their births, which was completely out of the job, you know, responsibility. <laughs> and I realized that there was one, a real gap for birthing support and, and 
tangible care. But then also I was awarded the experience of finding my gift. Um, and so I ended up like, you know, changing like careers within maternal and child health and starting my doula business on the side. And I did it on the side for about four years. And then for the last three years, it's been full time and full force. That's amazing. And it really does look like um, kind of like you're you're doing your God's work. Like it's it's almost divine. It's very it's very special to see. I'll definitely tag your Instagram page for anybody who's like wow, willing to look at that type of stuff. It, it's literally beautiful. I want to circle back to you saying you had your um, child, I don't know if it was daughter or son, but you had him at an early age and you had, um, you did, did you have just like a normal birth? Was it C-section? Because you were kind of like uninformed? Was it just like pretty normal? Yeah. And like what issues did you kind of realize from that situation? Yeah. So I had my daughter when I was 16 and throughout the pregnancy journey, I like looking back, knowing what I know now, in the moment, you don't know what you don't know. And you assume good intent from everyone in a white coat, right? You assume good intent for every medical professional. And as a 16-year-old, I was just completely unaware of the systemic um, policies and procedures and routine uh, disconnection, if you would. And so I was induced uh, the day before my due date specifically for the reason of going into school the next week and taking my exams. Um, and no one said like, hey, this isn't a good idea. You shouldn't go to school on a Monday when you had your baby on a Thursday. And I remember actually I, I went to school on Monday and uh, I, as I was taking my final exams, because my daughter was born in May, so it was the end of the school year, my milk came in and I didn't really know exactly what that was supposed to feel like either and was a, a bit... um um just caught off guard by that experience. And so anyways, I went in for an induction. Thankfully, my body had already like my, my, my cervix had already started to open before that. I was already kind of preparing my physical body was already preparing for birth. So the induction itself was not as long as inductions can be. However, there was just, there was just no, um, respect of the birthing experience there was no sacred element to it it was very procedure very routine they came in and told me what they were doing to my body they didn't ask me what what I felt I wanted to be done to my body and just by routine they came in they induced me gave me medication they came in they broke my water we didn't talk about risks we didn't talk about benefits we didn't talk about alternatives and I had my daughter and, and she was she was fine everything was safe but had I known what I know now, one, like I wouldn't have birthed in a hospital setting and I by far wouldn't have opted for an induction um, specifically out of convenience to take exams the next week. Yeah, it's, it's tragic and it's it's interesting. I don't know how um, we've came this far, basically, as in like giving away all of our like power to these to these medical institutions. And it seems kind of bizarre that we like people just, oh, I'm going to schedule a C-section. I'm going to do this. There's no preparation. It's like they just get the epidural. They get the C-section. They keep it moving. And to me, it seems like like birthing a child is kind of like the woman's like form of rite of passage almost. Like it's Absolutely. like it's supposed to be sacred. It's like 
that is your advancement into motherhood from whatever you want to call. I mean, we're having children later and later, so I wouldn't call it adolescence or whatever. But, you know, it is your kind of rite of passage into your adult life. And you have just birthed another human being. And we've been doing it for millennia without these hospitals. And now we just give away all of our power. Just tell me what to do. How do I make it easy? And it's just so crazy to me. And I, so I really want to have multiple shows with multiple different people around this type of issue in the coming next year for sure. And I really just think it's super important. And I think people at least deserve to know they have options. And Absolutely. a lot of people like that's the one thing, like if you want to be informed, at least gather some information. And then exactly. if you still want to do it the more modern way, then that's on you. But I don't think there's enough information floating around about it. And people are just highly unaware of it all. Yeah, you know, and also the medicalization of birth has this emergent element to it, right? And birth is not created to be an emergency situation. Our bodies intuitively, very primally, very instinctively know how to birth our babies. And if we are given the proper space to do so, we have the proper team to allow that support to occur, then we see bodies unfold the way that they're naturally supposed to. Um, emergencies occur, and we're grateful for medical intervention when we actually need it. But for the majority of women, your birthing experience shouldn't be a medicalized experience, right? We, we um, go to the hospitals most times in case of an emergency. And just Western medical like medical care in general is a very like let's prevent an emergency from happening so in order to do that we must control what's going on and birth isn't something to be controlled and and I and I see that more and more because I work with women from one all different walks of life all different backgrounds and also women who are choosing to birth in all three spaces home birth birthing center birth and hospital births and so in my like Rolodex of birthing experiences, I can pinpoint certain things and certain differentiations between what happens in a hospital setting versus what happens in maybe a home birth or a birthing center setting, right? And there's just this here in the, in the hospital, in the hospitalization of things, there's a sense of control, a sense of monitoring, a sense of, um, we have to see this amount of progression by this amount of time to follow within the guidelines and procedures that are just not relevant in the time frame of a naturally, you know, birthing um, situation. Yeah, it makes total sense. Well, let's start to get into some of the nitty gritty, the details here. Uh, for most people who don't even know what a doula means, why don't you tell them um, like, what is a doula? And then I know you kind of wanted to dive into like the difference between a doula and a midwife. So if you want to kind of tackle that all in one kind of yeah. a question there. Yeah, definitely. So doulas simply are women who support women. Um, if you think historically and you think even like biblically, biblically there have been women who the, the, the village of women who surround women when they're birthing. We see this. Um, we see this also in the animal world, for example, elephants. There's a very maternal happening over the birth of an of a baby elephant where generationally 
the grandma, the mom, the great grandma, if she's still alive, they, they herd around the birthing mom and protect that baby. So a doula is a non-medical woman who is helping women during their birthing experience. Over the last um, few decades, doulas have kind of stepped into the role of what old school granny midwifery was. And I'll talk about that in just a second as well. But we've become more of not just that physical and emotional support during the actual birthing experience, but now we we journey with the families throughout the whole pregnancy. So we provide prenatal education, prenatal support. We almost, I like to sort of, you know, imagine a, a sister who's informed and has like this Mary Poppins bag of tools and like never ending things that she can give you to help you through your experience. Uh, oftentimes I feel like for people who aren't aware of the specifics around birth, they confuse a doula with a midwife. And so a midwife is a medically trained professional who is responsible for the medical care of the mom and the baby during their birthing experience. And so um, a midwife is going to almost replace the care of an OBGYN and they're responsible for um, labs and, and the medical prenatal appointments. And when you're actually birthing, doing fetal heart tone, tones and doing cervical exams, that gosh forbid, if something was happening with, happening with the baby, they would be the one doing resuscitation measures. And they're all medical. Doulas are non-medical, but a very very critical part of the of the birthing experience. And this is one thing that I like to tell families if you're considering having a doula. Um, and sometimes people will say, well, why do we need both? Like, why, if, why do we need a doula if we're going to have a midwife? And the answer is that because the midwives are the medical professionals, they're not there through the journey, right? You can't just call your midwife on a Thursday night if you're having cramps and ask them what's going on. Um, you can't, in, in the birthing experience, you can't expect the midwife to come in and, um, provide counter pressure for endless hours or get you up into different positions because their role is not physical support. Their role is, is, you know, the medical, um, the medical support. And then overarching above all of that are OBs and, um, obstetrics is the, the founding, uh, practice, if you will of gynecology and um and, and labor care and so now we see a lot of midwives practicing in the hospital setting and those are certified nurse midwives which are very different in practice than home birth midwives and doulas can support a woman in all three settings so i my my um family find me and we talk about their birthing intentions and where they'd like to birth and what that looks like and then i follow them wherever they choose to birth <laughs> Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So when you're having this natural birth at the house, well, say it's at the house. I know there's birth centers and hospitals. Yeah, we can talk about yeah, all that. But say we were just having a home birth. Do I just need you as the doula and then the midwife? Are you the only two that are there? And then like maybe a hospital on backup if need be. Yeah, yeah. So if you're having a home birth, you would have your midwife, your home birth midwife. You would have your doula. And then um, you would know if, if ever there were an emergency situation or you needed to transfer for a slew of different reasons, then we would already know which hospital we would transfer to. And typically the home birth midwives have a relationship with the local hospital so that there could be a nice, gentle 
midwife to midwife transition from a home birth to a hospital birth if needed. Okay. And do you have to like uh, pay money or anything to have like the hospital on backup or how does that look? Yeah. So you don't have to pay to have the hospital on backup. Um, if you have insurance, you know, most hospitals, Hospitals take most insurance plans. And so you would pay your deductible or you would pay your copay or whatever it is for a hospital visit. Um, a lot of home birth midwives accept cash pay only, but there's usually uh, payment plans that are associated with that. Some home birth midwives take some insurance plans, but the insurance stuff on the back end can get really tricky and sticky. A lot of doulas don't uh, accept insurance either. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I, I, as I've gotten into like functional health practitioners and different things, they pretty much <laughs> holistic dentist. You pretty much can't use insurance anywhere. That's natural. it's so hard. It's pretty, and then you wonder why you don't have insurance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but you have to have insurance in case of emergency because the hospital wants in to charge you a hundred grand to break your arm or something. So it's it's so tricky. It's funny. It's like I never pretty much need insurance, but uh, if something were to happen, then I guess I would. All right, but uh, back to the doula and what you specialize in. It sounded like you're kind of starting, what, is it like before pregnancy, around pregnancy? Tell us how long that kind of relationship lasts as just a doula. Yeah, uh, so it, it really just depends on when people find me. Um, and I have several people who knew that they wanted to work with me prior to even getting pregnant. And we journey along and we talk about ways in which you can prepare your body and, um, you know, do some detoxing and just, you know, some functional med- medicine practices before pregnancy. And most times, though, a woman will like officially hire a doula after that 12 week kind of safe mark. And then we journey, we journey through. So I, I don't know exactly how other doulas practice, but I always ask families once we, once we make it official, I'll do a meet and greet with a family. I sit down, we have lunch or tea or coffee and kind of just get to know each other a little bit outside of the actual birth intentions or the birth planning, right? Because my idea, I just have this, like this life philosophy of connection before content. My heart is to build a relationship with any woman I serve and with her family. Um, it's important that partners feel included and that partners feel comfortable and safe. And um, they also feel held in the space because things it's new. It's new for everybody. And so that relationship really starts around like that 12 to 16 week mark. And then I do three birthing classes as well. And that's a little bit later on in pregnancy. So then I see them three different times. Um, I ask that families give me a call or a FaceTime after each of their appointments so that we can touch bases and so that I can help fill any gaps that might have happened during that appointment. So, for example, especially, again, in a hospital setting, uh, those providers, they're, they're busy. They have numbers. So they're in and out and in and out. And sometimes families will get home and say, man, what did they say again? What did they mean by this? That's when you call your doula. Your doula is there to provide context to what they're saying and give you a little bit more details. And again, give you some alternatives to what they might be suggesting that you do. And then obviously doulas are there for the birthing experience. And I do a couple of postpartum visits. And then honestly, I just journey with the families forever. Like my daughter says, I'm not allowed to have any more best friends. Um, I go to, you know, baby christenings and dedications. I go to first birthday parties all the time. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. And that to me makes a lot of sense as far as like, the people that you're going to want inside of your home or the birthing center are going to be people that you want to feel really comfortable around. Right. Yeah, so absolutely. if you hire just like 
just somebody right last minute, you switch to it. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. I'm just thinking if you have built this kind of connection and relationship and my wife feels really comfortable with you or whoever's wife, then that is just going to make it more of like a safe, sacred space when their birth's actually going on instead of just like all these like strangers around in this very kind of emotional, like triggered, hard setting that might even make it harder, I would think, to like have the baby if you're like absolutely. uncomfortable around these people who are in the room. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you think about this from a primal standpoint, from a, you know, from an animal standpoint, if they, and I give this example all the time because it's just, it's so uh, significant to the way that we as mammals, uh, you know, at birth. And so if you have a, a dog, for example, a stray dog who is in labor, she's getting ready to have her puppies. And all of a sudden, like she's, she's laboring. Maybe she found a backyard somewhere. Um, and all of a sudden a storm comes in. Her body physiologically will stall labor until the storm passes or until she finds a more dark, enclosed, safe space to have her puppies. Right. And so the same is true in with, with humans. We we are mammals and we have this primal instinct to to birth. And when we are transitioning into a birthing space that's maybe like bright lights and loud and there's beeping and there's things going on unconsciously or subconsciously, our bodies are like, hold on a second, red flag, can't birth, and we'll see women stall. We'll see a cervix go from you know, one to six in several hours and then just kind of hang out around six to seven centimeters for multiple hours because there's a there's an a safe unfolding that has to happen psychologically in order for our bodies to continue to progress physiologically. And this is why I am an advocate for home birth. I support women in no matter which decision they they choose in terms of where they like to birth. But in home birth settings, there's no transition. Right. We don't have to go anywhere. You just unfold all in your own home with your people around um, and you don't have random strangers coming in and people reintroducing themselves as shift changes and all those things that make it a little bit harder for your, you to burn. Yeah, that makes total sense. So you kind of dove into a topic um, as far as like um, when you start with them, I Sounds like you have the classes, which I don't know if they revolve around breathing or movement patterns and stuff. Sounds like uh, all of that. But you also kind of touched on some prenatal nutrition. Are you guiding people through different diets or supplementation? And what have you found works best for prenatal like nutrition? Yeah. So, you know, as a doula, again, I'm not a medical professional and it's hard to not play those roles, especially in my like with my own knowledge and understanding as I dive deeper into functional medicine for my own health and well-being and just like walk, walking through autoimmune issues and such. And so um, in general, I advise women to eat a whole foods diet, right? You, you really want to be intentional with what you put into your body, trying to eat organic meats if possible, um, eating a range of produce, limiting any processed foods, limiting any, you know, added sugar, all of all of the whole foods diets. And a lot of my a lot of the families that I work with, they're already like on that on that track. They're already kind of aware of the significance of food being medicine and food being fuel. 
And then some people just haven't arrived there yet. And that's okay too. And you have to meet them where they're at. So I can't say, okay, do this, 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 and this. And they're like, wait, what? Hmm. <laughs> um, and so I always encourage people to um, get, you know, an additional lab work done because your providers will do your, your normal prenatal panels. But let's also look just at your thyroid. Let's, let's look at some of your vitamin deficiencies and how can we fill those first with with uh, food and then like actual supplementation. So in general, whole foods, trying to supplement when possible, just being super intentional about all of the toxins and all of the things, right? And then like a non-toxic life is literally, I mean, it's a lifestyle. And some people just haven't arrived there yet. And then other people understand, one, how time consuming it is, and also how much money it costs sometimes to dive into this lifestyle. And and so just meeting people where they are. Yeah, that's key. You're not going to get everyone to, we're super like neurotic over here of structured filtered water. And we pretty much eat paleo and all the supplements, but um, I can imagine, (laughs) I can imagine some people aren't there. Uh, Do you have like, have you looked into like nourishing traditions, like Weston A. Price type of diet? That's what I've seen as far as like my research, that seems to be the most beneficial. It's like a lot of full fat, raw dairy, like yeah. liver oil, beef liver, things like that. Yeah, eating a lot of the livers. So so yes, and um, yes, and you have to be just careful with some of the bacteria and some of the cultures that are associated with more raw foods and um, specifically with livers when you're when you're pregnant. But ultimately, that that way of eating and his practices in life, doing life in community, right? Doing life as like this community structured, let's use the earth and the animals, the whole animal as a form of of nutrient. Um, That is, it's very primal. Our bodies have adjusted over the years of, you know, processed foods and such to, um, so we just it's hard to eat like that i think that for the for the common family for the most you know common family and so yes my personal principles are around around that um and then again just meeting families where they are but in terms of research definitely um weston his principles but then also you know streaming into the paleo side of things where you have a little bit more cooked food, uh, cooked meat specifically. Um, you just want to be really careful with more raw uh, meat and foods and cheese and, and, and such with being pregnant because listeria is a very common bacteria that normally our body can process really well, but during pregnancy, we don't process that as well. Yeah, I think it probably may, may depend on the farm. Sometimes I wonder if the raw milk thing's a little skewed with the bacteria and stuff, because I know plenty of people who just chug raw milk and it's like never mm-hmm. been an issue. And I think it's like a, a small type of thing that they blew out of proportion because I for me, there's just more money in them pasteurizing the milk and selling it themselves than of the course. farmer just selling it to their neighbor. So I always am a little wary, but I do have a really great regenerative farm that sells amazing like A2 dairy and goat dairy and things like that. And they're, they're real clean. So I would probably, a lot of my that. families do goat milk. Mm-hmm. Like in my mom's yeah. who are, who are, and it's, it's, it's interesting because our bodies 
uh, crave what we need during pregnancy. And I always encourage women to lean into that. So I also serve several vegan families um, and families who choose to live a vegetarian lifestyle and or a vegan lifestyle. And they'll say, Alyssa, like, I'm, I just, I want meat. And, you know, it goes against their practice that they've been doing for years sometimes. And my heart is to support people where they are. And also, hey, you really need to lean in with what your body is calling you to need. Um, and so I have several people who have not had milk in years. And then during pregnancy, they, they go to whole goat's milk, um, from your local farmer's market or a local farm. There's a couple of good places in Tampa. And then there's a, a local farmer's market in Clearwater that a lot of my families like to get their, their goat's milk from. Yeah, for sure. There's a great farm. If anybody wants to reach out to me, I, I think this, do you, have you uh, heard of full circle farms? Um, no, I don't think so. So they deliver over off of Hillsborough uh, Avenue every Thursday. You got to meet them in like a Maybe church parking lot. One. But it's a regenerative farm. I mean, they have raw butter, raw A2 dairy, A2 kefir. I mean, they have the works and it's it's the yeah. best I've ever tasted. I mean, it's like $16 a gallon for a A2 cow's milk and like $20 a gallon for goat's milk. So it's definitely, it might be out of the range for some people, but if if you're really looking for something that's digestible, regenerative, and really done the right way, uh, that's the spot I recommend for sure. And yeah, circling back to the vegan pregnancy, I, I've also had another guest on who, who left veganism and has a really big following, and she talked about the same thing with the pregnancies. Have you seen any issues out of people who choose to stay especially vegan? Like vegetarian, I feel like you can get some of the nutrients, but then like strict vegan, I feel like definitely comes with some nutritional deficiencies. Have you seen like problems in birthing with those people? Yeah. So it's, it's hard for me to really make the, the research um, correlation because I don't have enough of a cohort to compare vegan veganism and their outcomes versus, you know, meat eaters and, and their outcomes. Um, but in general, I do see like vitamin deficiencies. Um, I see low iron. That's one. And low iron in pregnancy is a real concern because it increases the likelihood of hemorrhaging postpartum or directly after the baby. And so low iron is one of those um, qualifications that will send you to a hospital birth. If you were planning on having a home birth, for example, if, if, if you're, if your iron is, if you're, Wanting to have a home birth and your iron is low, um, and, uh, you know, lower than whatever your midwife is saying is, is her specific threshold and, and the recommended threshold, then she would have to transfer you. Like that would be a, a reason to transfer. And so I do see lower iron in both vegetarians and vegans. Um, and again, trying to meet people where they are, encourage them. And, and not, you know, come off as judgmental or unsupportive, but it's important if you are choosing not to eat meat to find a quality protein source, but then also get your, your labs done a little bit more often than just your routine labs so that you can see what's going on, especially after 34 weeks. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Do you think the babies come out looking a, like a lot smaller? I know a girl who had two vegan babies and to me, they just look really tiny. They look really small. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't noticed necessarily again, because the cohort I feel like is not a, a, a big enough cohort to make some like effective research, you know, correlations. 
Um, but I have had vegan moms that have issues with uh, breastfeeding and milk supply. And so without that, that breast milk and low supply, their babies may be a, a bit smaller. Yeah, that makes total sense. I just, I did the vegan thing. So like, I know, like I was, I didn't eat meat for a year and a half and I was totally vegan for just about a year and it kind of pretty much wrecked my health. And my yeah. wife was vegetarian for most of her life. And now she's on the grass fed meat and the cod liver oil feels great. She's drinking. I also milk. was vegetarian yeah. for a while. Um, yeah. And it's, it's so interesting. So I hadn't, I hadn't eaten red meat in. I don't know, maybe like 10 years, like a long time. And then as I started to venture through my own health journey again with autoimmune issues, um, and this is about three years ago now, all of the holistic practitioners that I had seen, they're like, you need to incorporate red meat, red meat, red meat. And I'm like, no, no, no. And then I was like, when I finally did have it, I was like, wow, this is what my body <laughs> needed. I feel like this is what, you know, I need it. And so now I, I, you know, incorporate it once a week. Um, and sometimes there's that mental block for me because our, our minds are powerful, right? And our bodies respond to our minds. Um, and when you don't do something for so long or when you practice a specific way of living or a specific way of eating for so long, sometimes it's hard to overcome those thoughts that are associated and built up um, around certain foods. Absolutely. I had a whole psychological issue and I had only not eaten meat for a year and a half. I was like staring at it for a while. It took me like three days to actually like go to the store and yeah. buy it. So <laughs> I can only imagine. I mean, it's intense. You're like, I thought this was the way I thought I had done the research. And then it comes to find out like it's really for a lot of people. It's really not the way I think some people get away with it. But the vegan one really excludes like all your fat soluble vitamins. There's a lot of yeah. critical nutrients, in my opinion. So that makes a lot of sense. All right, so let's switch topics off of the nutrition and get into, like, uh, why do you think people should even have these natural births? And, like, have you seen, like, differences in, like, cognitive development or physical development in people who do have the natural births versus a normal birth? Yeah, so I I think, like, the, the main reason why someone should do a... And, and I like to use the term unmedicated rather than natural, um, because all births to some extent are natural, phys phys you know, physiologically. They, the babies come out wherever they come out, whether belly, um, births or vaginal births, but essentially unmedicated births allow for the woman to unfold the way in which her body was created to do so. So when we leave a, you know, if you think about a tree, right? When we leave a tree, we've planted the seed, the tree is sprouting, the tree is growing, all is well. When we leave it untouched, we soil it, we nurture it, we water it, we pray over it, we intentionalize its growth, all of these beautiful things. But in these moments, we're not disrupting it. We're not shaking it. We're not uh, you know, uprooting it. We're not repotting it. We, we just leave it untouched. Then, th then the tree grows, right? The body is the same way. When we leave a woman's body untouched within a realm of safety, still keeping, you know, keeping an eye on baby, keeping an eye on mom, making sure baby's heart tones are good um, during the birthing experience, because births can be very, very long. You know, we can have births that sometimes take 36 hours. Um, but when we let the woman's body do what it was created to do, 
we see an unfolding that occurs exactly how it should. And we can do a lot of movement, a lot of position changes when a mom is in a home birth experience or a birthing center because she's not connected to monitor. She's not connected to the IV. There's just a little bit less restriction when we're doing things in the comfort of our own home. Um, and so sometimes when we do hospital experiences, we don't have as much freedom because now we're connected to the monitors. And, you know, when people are lying on their back, their tailbone is restricted. It doesn't give the baby enough space to move down and come down. Does that make sense? Yeah, I always and, thought and like then, just laying back with your legs in the air in one position seems totally unnatural. Of course, there's going to yeah, be complications. No. Exactly. And it is very unnatural. And also, when you think about the psychology of a safe space, your home is your safe space, right? Um, a really good example of this is like if let's say we were all out shopping or spending the day out and about running errands and we have to poop. Not everyone is comfortable with pooping in public or in a public bathroom. So you kind of hold on to that. And then the moment you get home, you can like release and let go. And now you've pooped. Uh, the same, the same psychological safety and release happens more naturally when you're at home with birth. We don't have to leave and go anywhere. We don't have to get in the car. We don't have to transition and walk through the hospital. There's this unconscious, unconsciously we associate hospitals with emergencies and something being wrong. And so even if a woman's in labor and she knows she's going to the hospital to birth, she might have in the back of her mind this, this element of like, ooh, is this the right space? And we don't see that with home births. We we're able to just really unfold and in the comfort of someone's own home. We can use their own bed and their own pillows and their own bathroom and their own showers. And, you know, their partners are there and maybe their family is there. And if they have siblings or other children, <laughs> the siblings are there. Yeah, I like that. So what all does someone need to even have a home birth? I see people with like these pools and different things. Like, yeah, I'm assuming there's probably... A lot you can spend or you can probably meet people where they're at financially. But what does like a basic normal setup look like for at home birth? Yeah. So remember that if you're birthing, really all you actually need is just your body. Your body's going to do it without anything. Right. So if your baby comes really quickly and you just have your body and your partner or somebody to help catch the baby, you're good to go. <laughs> but, uh, your, your home birth midwife will. Um, provide a pool for you if you'd like that. Usually midwives will rent out their pools and we ask families to have a ton of towels. Um, the midwife will bring all of the medical supplies. So if, for example, if there needs to be a vaginal repair, if the mom, um, tore, you know, the, the midwife would bring those medical tools. If there needs to be newborn resuscitation, for example, the midwife will bring and provide all of that. Anything medically, related the, the midwife will bring. Um, we ask that families purchase chucks pads just to protect their linen and their floors. Um, lots of towels. Sometimes we'll ask families to purchase um, like a large shower curtain to put underneath of their, their bed set or a um, waterproof covering over the mattress. Um, you want to have snacks. You want to have 
food and fuel, um, any sort of minerals that you'd like to put in your water so that you're hydrated and you have some of those electrolytes back in you, potassium, right? Birth is a very, very physical occurrence, right? It, 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 it's, it's like running a marathon a million times over and you can't do it without without food and fuel and, and, and being hydrated. And so making sure that families have, um, have all of those things. There's what we call a birth box or a birth kit that most people can purchase either through their midwife or birthing center, or um, there's some on Amazon now. And it has just like some essentials. Again, it, ha- it comes with like a box of ch- chucks pads. There's a little uh, fishnet scooper in case the mom's in the tub and she poops. We just kind of scoop it out. Uh, which normally happens during birth. So but, um, that's it. You don't really need a whole lot of things. Oh, that's interesting. See, I thought it would, might have been a little bit more dramatic than that, but that seems pretty basic, and it seems like the midwife it's very basic. covered up most of it. Yeah, yep. that's awesome. Cool. And so let's describe kind of like what does it look like? I mean, does like the, the uh, birthing mother like go into labor, give you a call, everyone kind of rushes over to the house? How's that look? How's the entire process look? Yeah. Okay. So I like to describe labor as I, I, just in this metaphorical visual sense, I like to describe labor as a trip that the three of us, me, you, your wife, or me, you know, the, the family will take to a mountain. Okay. And we're going to go hiking up this mountain and the mountain is steep. It's hot. It's high. It's a lot of work, but you have the tools that you need to get up the mountain. You have your support system. You're there with your best people. You have the best tour guide in the city. I've been to the mountain a million times. Like I know the mountain through and through. And we have the preparation to get there. Not just like if we were to go on a trip to hike next week, where there's preparation that occurs. We need to know where we're going. We need to have our bags packed. We need to have a plan. We need to have everybody in line. And so the mountain is active labor and there's different stages of labor. Um, the mountain is active labor. It's the, it's the real work. This is the, you know, what, what's depicted on TVs and TV shows, which are over exaggerated, but nonetheless, active labor is the work. Before we get to the mountain of active labor, just like we, if we were going hiking next week, um, there's usually a, a long trail or a long forest before you get to the hiking portion of the mountain. So all of that work, all of that, that, trail or forest before the mountain is early labor. Early labor, especially for a first-time birthing mom, can be pretty long, anywhere between like 12 and 18, 12 and 24 hours. And so this is what the family is going to do on their own before the doula comes. Um, This is where you would be the primary support person as a a partner. Um, The family would call me. They would let me know, hey, I'm feeling a little bit crampy. Hey, I maybe lost my mucus plug. I have a little bit of bloody show. My contractions are coming now in a patterned, um, a patterned frequency, but they're breathable, they're doable. And we go over, I go over all of this with all of my clients and class, like the difference between what to look for and what your body's going to be doing and kind of what to expect and all of that. So the early labor journey, I kind of check in with them. I FaceTime, I call the, the midwife is absolutely not there for any of this. She comes at the very peak of the mountain. Um, and then things start to pick up. They start to intensify. The contractions are lasting a little bit longer. They're a little bit closer together. This is when the doulas come. We come because now we're providing that physical, emotional support to get this woman up this mountain. And then once we know that we're getting a little bit closer to transition labor, the midwife comes. And then she comes to almost like finish the journey up with us, if that makes sense. Um, and so I, 
essentially live my life on call and I'm in constant communication with all of my families that I serve. And we touch bases through early labor. I come during active labor. I stay throughout the birth and then for a couple of hours postpartum. Yeah, it's funny because I was like, was the scheduling thing was one of my questions. And then you like texted me before the show, like, hey, I got to go. I got to have a mother in labor. And it's so funny. And I guess told you earlier, like, I honor you for that commitment because that seems like it's a very hectic schedule for sure. Thank you. It is. And there, you know, you, you truly have to be called to the space to occupy it well. Um, because nobody in their right mind is going to live their life on call like this. <laughs> you just get up in the middle of the night and you go. And sometimes you're at a birth for eight hours, but sometimes you're there for 18 hours. And then your family has to sacrifice that time with you. And you have to, you know, you just have to plan. Sleep. You sleep when you can and you nourish your body in other ways because sleep, you know, doesn't happen consistently. Um, and you have to always preference, yes, I'll do this if. I'm not at a birth or yes, I'll be there if I'm not at a birth. And so it's, it's a ton of sacrifice, but um, ultimately it's rewarding when you feel called to the space. Yeah. 100%. It's it, I got told you, it looks like it's your calling and you probably get a lot of reward out of it, even though there is definitely a sacrifice, sacrifice there. And I don't know, it's definitely not for everybody just being calling. Like, I don't even, how do you stay up if it's like a 24 hour birth, you chugging coffee or what are you doing? I pray. So I gave up coffee in my um in my journey through health and oh, okay. um and and so I do drink tea. Um if it's if it's like if I've been up for longer than like 18 hours, I'll do a matcha tea. Uh, I pray, I don't know, like I'm also really <laughs> engaged in right. the, the process. If need be, like if I'm really getting into that, there's this there's this space that comes, this like foggy I have lost my words space, <laughs> then I can call a backup doula to, um, to come in and relieve me and sleep for a few hours and then go back or sleep overnight and then go back the next day. Um, but essentially the, the, the hope would be to prepare the family well enough that they can get through the early labor portion together. I arrive at active labor and on average, I'm usually at a birth for anywhere between like eight and 12 or 15 hours. Oh, that's not too crazy, actually. But I guess it makes a lot of sense with the preparation and really having everyone prepared to where you're just yeah. there during the intense moments and to get the job done so that you're not just over there for 24 and 36 hours straight. Yeah. What gets shaky is when I when I had like a whole day, like let's I, I wake up every day at like 630 um, and then I have to go to a birth that night. That's when I get shaky because I didn't rest during the day. And even if I'm only at the birth for 12 hours overnight, it's it's an overnight. And then it just bleeds back into my next day. And I personally don't do well with sleeping during the day. Um, and so then I don't get that that full night's sleep until the next night. That's when things get a little, ooh, I don't know about this. <laughs> uh, no, have you ever heard of New Calm? Mm-mm. So it's a little device where you put this disc on your wrist and you're going to put headphones in. You have, they send you an eye mask with it and uh, mm -hmm. it'll shift you, shift you into a state where you'll basically fall asleep, but you can get like two to five hours worth of deep sleep um, in like the 20 to 40 minute hour long nap that you take. And even if you're not really feeling that tired, it'll shift you. And even if you don't fall asleep, you still get all the GABA and the stuff. I think that would be, I love that thing. Like, even if I'm just What's it a called again? Bit tired, 
It's called Newcom. I'll send you it over. It's yeah, probably like five five dollars a session or so. But I think for how sporadic your schedule is, if you could just throw one of those in in the midday when you know you're going to be up all night, like it would probably work wonders for you. Yeah, uh, it no, like resets your whole nervous system. It's, I mean, I'm addicted to this thing. I, anytime I need to lay down for a nap, I'm putting the new calm on. Like I don't just take regular naps anymore. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Listen to me. All the things. For sure. Yeah, I'll hook you up. Cool. So where were we at? Okay, sounds like you got through the whole how long you're going to be there. I know there's a big question around, especially with natural births, like how long does the placenta stay on? What are the benefits around that? And then do you have the mothers kind of capsulate that or eat that somehow? Uh, tell us what why the placenta is important and like how you work around that. Yeah, for sure. So delayed cord clamping is... Um, where a lot of like the conversation around the placenta is at right now. We, um, we want the, the cord to stay connected to baby and connected to the placenta for as long as possible. Delayed cord clamping in a hospital setting is anywhere between like one and five minutes, but in a home birth set, I leave it connected for like an hour or two. It just, it just depends on how long it takes to birth the placenta and then get mom situated. Um, sometimes people will do what's called a lotus birth where they don't remove the placenta from the cord um, until the cord naturally falls off of the baby's belly button. And so that can take anywhere between like seven and 10 days and they would just preserve the placenta in a cooler um, and with specific herbs and they keep the placenta. Basically it's almost like a backpack for the baby. It just goes everywhere the baby goes for the, you know, the week or so after birth. And that's, that's called a lotus birth. So that's one option that people would do. What I find most people doing is choosing to encapsulate the placenta. So we would leave the cord connected for anywhere between like an hour or two postpartum um, in a home birth or birthing center setting. And then, and the benefits of that are, uh, um, there's a million, right? There's, you know, you know, the, in general, the baby is getting all of the, Hormones still from mama because they're connected through the um, umbilical cord. And specifically, the, the mom's body is helping to detoxify the baby's body also through the cord. And so it takes a little bit of time for the body, for the baby to come out and, and their body to say, okay, we're not, you know, receiving these, these nutrients anymore. We're not receiving this oxygenated blood anymore. We're not receiving the benefits of de detoxification through the mom. Now their hormonal system has to kick into gear and that takes a while to just transition. And so leaving the cord attached allows us to give that baby time to transition and then them, you know, being able to um, to process their own toxins that were still left over in their body from from the uh, pregnancy. And so then women will uh, encapsulate. And so I do encapsulation. It's a two-day process. I take the placenta with me and I um, essentially cut it, dehydrate it, and then encapsulate it. And a lot of the health benefits of consuming the placenta after birth revolve again around that hormonal exchange. So going back to mammals, going back to animals, because we essentially, we're primal. This is, this is where we come from. And we are the only humans are the only mammals that do not consume their placentas after birth. So monkeys, cats, dogs, all other mammals 
will consume their placentas after birth because it's full of micronutrients. It's full of zinc, iron, amino acids, fatty acids, all of the nutrients that our body needs and that we may be a bit depleted from for the first several days after um, you have a baby because of the process of birth and losing all of that blood and such. And so it helps uh, it helps replenish those micronutrients, but then more specifically around hormones, our bodies uh, need to need that 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 help balancing out the progesterone levels and the estrogen levels. So the two female sex hormones are progesterone and estrogen. And when we're pregnant, our endocrine system is not making as much progesterone. It's made within the placenta. So the placenta has a large amount of progesterone in it. So when you birth the placenta, again, it takes a couple of weeks for your body to balance out hormonally and say, oh, man, I'm not pregnant anymore. Now I need to make lactation hormones and now I need to keep my baby alive. And so this is why we will see women have um, they'll, they'll experience the baby blues a little bit different from postpartum depression. The baby blues are more common for all women within the first like two to three weeks of pregnancy. So when you consume the placenta in small amounts, like through a capsule, it helps just balance out those hormones. A lot of my partners will call the placenta capsules uh, the woman's happy pills. <laughs> They'll say, like, Alyssa, can you bring some more of those happy pills over? I'm like, listen, her placenta only made this many. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so, so it'll help with that hormonal balance and exchange that occurs postpartum. And then other women will say that they see an improvement in, um, like postpartum acne, postpartum hair loss, postpartum night sweats, postpartum headaches. So lots of benefits there. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. And I've never even heard like some, cons- I'm not getting too deep into the conspiratorial stuff, but like hospitals clamp it real fast because they can get like stem cells and different uh, yeah. things out of it that they actually sell. I don't know how true it is, but it's interesting that they are Listen, looking once you to- see that. And you, when you do your research, it's hard to unsee it. <laughs> yeah, I just, I'm like, it, it makes sense, right? They want to clamp it off as soon as possible and get it off of there. I don't think they're just throwing it away when it's full of right. full of uh, vitamins, nutrients, different things, hormones. I, I think it's going somewhere, and, and that might just yeah. be the conspiratorial side of me, and uh, just. I don't know. I don't want to go too deep in that rabbit hole, but it's just something that I've like observed. Yeah, I've I feel like I, um, I have my thoughts there too, and I always encourage women. <laughs> that even if they're not birthing or sorry even if they're not consuming the placenta like if they're not encapsulating it still just take your placenta it's yours it's your body's organ like right don't just leave it hanging around there i mean it makes a lot if you're saying every other single mammal does this and we don't i mean it just makes sense like why would we be the one species that doesn't need it and then that postpartum depression has so many people you hear so many people talking about it because you're giving this baby all of your mineral status all of your vitamins, you're trying to, you'll give more to the baby than probably you'll need for yourself, especially when yeah, people absolutely. already like come in depleted. A lot of people aren't doing yep. the things that we're doing a year in advance to, to, you know, have all the vitamins and nutrient status. So it's like, you're already depleted. You're going to give the baby what it needs. So now you're super depleted and then you don't want to take back in any of that stuff you gave away. Seems like it's just a setup for depression. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And, you know, hormonal shifts are very real, especially in women, especially because we're having babies later on now. Um, I feel like we're not popping babies out in our 20s anymore. Definitely, you know, mid 30s to late 30s. Most families, it's you know, and, and, and our bodies biologically have a timeline and our hormones lead that. And so it's important to have that support postpartum for sure. 
Yeah, it makes total sense. So what have you seen that helps like uh, natural births be more successful? Is it kind of just luck? Do some bodies just not able to, are some bodies basically not able to just have the natural or do all the like breathing techniques and the movements and everything you do beforehand kind of help set up for the success of that? Well, yeah, definitely all of the, the pre-work um, is, is going to lead to a more successful outcome. Uh, having your support team, reading the things, practicing the things, deepening your knowledge and deepening your intention. And when we tell our bodies that we can do something, our bodies follow. When we have skepticism and we're timid or we're scared or we heard somebody's birthing experience that settled into our subconscious mindset, then our bodies respond in that way. Um, and in general, we like to use this analogy of the four P's of labor. So these four things, and without like going too deep into it, um, on a basic level, there's there's four P's that we need to see present in order for your baby to come out unmedicated, untouched, and vaginal. And so the first one is power. P is for power. The power of the contractions has to be a um, it has to be a, a factor that's that's happening and the, the power is there. If we have inadequate contractions for whatever reason, sometimes it could be the position of the baby. Sometimes it can be that the mom is really tired and fatigue. Sometimes it could be something like fibroids in the way or there's a, there's a range of different reasons why we may not see a very strong, powerful contraction. So if that's the case, that would require us to transfer and get some medical help, some Pitocin to help make those contractions stronger. So P is one. The second P is, um, is passageway. You know, the, the actual structure of the woman's body, the hips. One word of, you know, just like a token here, your body will create a baby that your body can birth. So. Our bodies are not going to create, unless we have like gestational diabetes or there's some other comorbidity, then we're talking other things. But like for a, a low risk, healthy pregnancy, healthy woman, her baby is going to be a size that her body can birth. But sometimes the passageway, the hips, the, the pelvis, there could have been like a previous injury from childhood that can prevent the hips from opening a certain way. If the mom had like, let's say a tailbone injury as an adolescent and now her tailbone was broken and it's really in the way and can't open and separate the way that, that the, the, um, pelvis needs to in order for that baby to come down, that can get in the way. The third P is passenger, the actual baby. What's going on with the baby? Are fetal heart tones healthy? Is the baby actively engaging in these contractions? Are we seeing dips in the heart tone? Is the baby stressed? Like, those things we need to keep an eye on, and we do at home births through fetal heart tones. And then the last and most significant P is the position of the baby. And so this goes back to the hip, um, the the visual that I just gave. You know, we need that baby to be in the perfect position in order for things to work properly. And so sometimes we can maneuver babies externally with like a rebozo or certain positions to help with that. That makes a lot of sense because I see people on your Instagram, they're kind of squatting or they're moving. You guys, I, I don't know if that's what the rebozo is you talked about or whatever. It's like, looks like a towel or whatever. And you're kind of moving yeah, around. And yeah, so that's just yeah. makes more, way more sense to me as far as like positioning the baby than just like we talked about earlier, just like laying on your back and expecting it to just come out like it's supposed to. 
Yeah, definitely laying on your back is that's that's not the vibe. <laughs> your body needs <laughs> to move. You think about if you're in pain, like let's say you stub your toe on the side of the bed. Immediately, like if you just stand there, you feel your pinky toe throbbing. But if you shake it off and walk it off and take a deep breath, then you can like sustain that that pain momentarily. One of the other things that I think needs to be said is the necessity of partner engagement and that's important because the moms the 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 birthing person the the mother needs to feel supported by her partner um physically emotionally mentally spiritually there is a hovering a covering that needs to take place by the partners. Um, a lot of those same hormones that help you have a baby are the same hormones that help the baby come out. You know, we jokingly say, um, like outside of IVF and some other, you know, ways of, of, of getting pregnant, but the same way the baby gets in is the same way the baby gets out. Lots of love, lots of kisses, lots of affirmation, lots of skin to skin, lots of connection, um, lots of intimacy. All of those things can help a mom progress cervically and get her baby out. Yeah, I was actually wanting to touch on some of that. So let's go there for a minute. Um, are yeah. there like classes or preparation that the father can do to be more comforting, be more helpful, things like that? Yeah, definitely. So I know with my birthing classes, like the partners are encouraged to come, especially for that second session, because we do a practice comfort techniques and positions and they get to feel like, oh, yeah, we're going to do this position. This is how I can support her. Ultimately, though, there's just a conversation that needs to take place continuously between the partners, um, because, you know, when you think about the five languages of love, and you think about someone's love language and how they like to receive love, it's important that the, the partners know that because she's going to need that and more during her birthing experience. Um, if you think about like moments when you're vulnerable, what what do you need? sometimes women or sometimes people when they're vulnerable like if you're sick or if you've lost someone that you love or you're just going through like a really emotional and or physical experience you need support you need love and light and words and comfort and the partners can be that and do all of that and there's you know birthing classes that dads can go to yes and then also maybe doing some um, in-home prenatal yoga sessions together. That's another really good way to get physical and get into her body with her um, because she's going to want you to touch, but touch in the right ways. She's going to want you to provide counter pressure, but in the right spaces. So definitely practicing beforehand. Oh, that's amazing because my wife's a yoga instructor. So we, we go to yoga already all the time. So we would just have to transition into more of that probably slow, gentle, prenatal style, which I don't know what that looks like, but I've already been doing yoga for like five, six years pretty regularly, so I'd be I down love, for it. Yeah, I started my day this morning with a power yoga. It was great. Yeah, I, I haven't been able to go for like two weeks because I had messed my hand up and uh, been kind of killing oh, me. No. It's, it's really a good – I meditate every day, but I like to – get that hour long breathing session in of the yoga and really be in my body. It does wonders for yeah. me. So, 100%. Me do you too. think the, um, her like doing yoga regularly kind of helps with that, the hips part where like you see people who do yes. yoga more kind of open yeah. up easier. Yeah, I do. Uh, so I, I love working with, I, I feel like I was joking. I had a, a client birth on Monday and she's really big in the, in our local 
yoga community. And so I told her, I said, I think that like, I'm in the second ripple outside of the yoga community. Like I'm, I, you know, here's the yoga community and I'm like right outside of that because I'm so well connected, but not like a yoga instructor. Um, and so I work with several families or several women that are, um, active yoga practitioners. And I do find that it's not just with like, not just with like their hips opening more or, or just more naturally as, as much like that's helpful. Yes. But I feel like there's a mentality shift that comes with people who practice yoga. Does that make sense? I feel like breath work is connected. The I can's, I wills, I am's, like meet myself on the mat where I am today mindset shifts into the birthing space as this, like, my body can do this. And if it doesn't feel good in this position, let me take a few breaths first. And then we'll transition to a new position. Right. So I do, I do feel like there's this, um, this different layer of emotional and mental, physical unfoldings. That makes total sense. And I honestly, I see it in her already. She does. I don't think she has any doubts just from how like strong she is and everything. We've just been working on getting the nutrition and the health stuff all good. Uh, but she has no doubts that she's going to deliver this baby basically in her living room. I love it. I love it. So, so the mentality part probably makes a big, big deal. I would, like we said, there's a lot of things that can probably manipulate it as far as set and setting and who's around. But ultimately, the the mother has to believe she can do it as well, or it's probably going to be a struggle, I would imagine. A hundred percent. And also the partner's not wavering. So one of the most difficult parts of being a doula is, when I watch the partners watch the mom experience such discomfort for so long, I feel like the dads break and I need them to hold it together so that she doesn't break because you're her solid rock. Like you're her foundation. You're the anchor that's keeping her engaged in her body and in her birthing experience. And I'm not saying be emotionless. That's definitely not what I'm saying, but not projecting how it feels for you to be watching her experiencing this discomfort, not projecting that in your facial expressions and body language, um, telling her that she can and she's so strong and, and using a, rather than viewing it as like, oh, my goodness, she's so tired and this is a lot of work and she's in, in pain and, and changing that to my gosh, like she's so strong to endure this many hours of labor, I know that she's going to be a strong mom on the other end of this. I know that we're getting closer. I know that our baby is almost here. Um, and the same is just as hard to watch the maternal moms, like to so the grandma of the baby or the mothers of the client, um, watch their, their daughter's birth. You know, sometimes I have to politely ask them to, you know, go into the other room <laughs> because they, there's a maternal instinct there that they have while they're watching their daughter give birth and moms will say like, are you okay? You know, do do we need to transfer? Like, are you sure you don't want to get pain medication? And I'm like, no, <laughs> don't say that, you know? Yeah. I can imagine like the, 
the mothering way, especially they probably had a hospital birth. They kind of always want to like take that pain away or make sure everything's yeah. safe. And it's not really like meant to be harmful, but it can probably disrupt the situation. Exactly. Disrupt the, the, uh, the thought patterns of I can do this. Right. And as far as like, so like for me, I'm the father, you're looking for someone who's a little bit more stoic, probably saying some affirmations and being comforting. You can't really show your, not to like you said, you can show emotion. You're about to have a baby, but not show like worry or panic. And yeah, I, I'll I, show I know fear, that. Yeah. All of those doubtful energies and doubtful thoughts and doubtful facial expressions. <laughs> Don't show any of those. Even if you're feeling yeah. it, because honestly, it can be a little intimidating. It can be scary. And I have to, I have to really be empathetic towards that. You know, I, I am in birthing spaces all the time, over and over and over again. So I know something's going to be okay, even if it doesn't look okay. A really, really great example of this is a couple of weeks ago, I had a home birth and, um, the baby, the baby's head was outside of the vagina for almost three minutes before the body came out. I know that the baby's going to be fine, right? We know that babies can, they're still receiving that oxygenated blood from the mom's umbilical cord or from the, from the umbilical cord and from the mom. And the dad was panicked. I mean, like he, and we were, obviously we were reassuring him like, Hey, this is normal. She's going to come with the next couple of contractions. Like we're going to just keep taking nice deep breaths. And he had started crying because he was nervous. And I get that. And there's like this anticipation for hours and hours. Like, when is the baby actually coming? So there's a, a lot of like release of emotion that comes out as well. And so then the mom started panicking and then her deep breathing became shallow breathing. And then we're like, no, no, no. Like, you have to continue to breathe deeply because this baby needs the oxygenated blood now more than, you know, the whole experience. And so really um, comforting, you know, the dads. But it can be scary. It can be intimidating to see these things for the first time. Yeah, I'm going to take some of my, I'm, I don't know if you've ever even researched combo, but it's, it's a pretty, un, I'm a combo practitioner and it's a pretty uncomfortable experience. And I have to be really stoic, especially because people can kind of swell up and they think that their breathing's restricted or this and that. And like you said, me as the practitioner, I know that they're fine. Like they're, they're just overreacting. Yeah. And if I were to overreact in that situation, then they would really overreact. So I have to be more calm, stoic, reassuring that they're fine. And it's a lot different than birthing, but it is a very uncomfortable experience where I'm not, I mean, I would think that that practice would come into play during, during something like that as well. Yeah, no, for sure. It sounds similar. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're puking. They're very uncomfortable. Their heart rate's up. They're sweating. And sometimes they, they feel like, like their throat's tongue. constricted. So, mm -hmm. so yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's sure it's only 20 minutes long, but it's, it's definitely highly uncomfortable and I have to keep my composure or they will freak out and want it off and think that something's going south. Yeah. And then immediately, right. When we, when we assume something's going south, what do we want? Emergency care. Take me to the hospital. <laughs> like take me, you know. And we did, and it's, it's ultimately that's not what we wanted. Right. Uh, speaking of the hospitals, we didn't really touch on something I wanted to get on as far as like uh, like epidurals and pain medication. What is the actual issue for people who who get those during pregnancy? Um. 
So there's not necessarily an issue. It just all depends on on the woman's like values and her desire, like whether or not she wants one. Um, when you, I guess, like from a practitioner standpoint, and I wouldn't say an issue, but like one of the downsides to getting an epidural is that it just restricts your movement, like your bed bound. And again, all of that conversation that we just had about the um, one, the intrinsic desire to move during your birthing experience, but two, physiologically, like the need to move, you have to move your body and open your hips. Like you can't just lay there. And so the, the epidural will bed bound you. It restricts your movement and your mobility within your legs. And so that's why people tend to want to go um, unmedicated just so that they have the freedom to move. The other thing is that sometimes the epidural can have side effects like any other medication. Um, and some women complain of, you know, their back hurting or they can get like these really bad postpartum headaches. And so those are more of the, the concerns around getting one or not. Um, there's also other medication that you can get through an IV at the hospital rather than doing an epidural. You can get IV meds. There's a medication called Stadol and fentanyl, and obviously fentanyl is not like off the streets. It's a it's a medicated dose, but it's a very small dose that takes the edge off of the discomfort that the woman is feeling, kind of makes her a little bit sleepy, and then it might give her body the ability to relax enough to unfold. So I do believe that there's a time and a place for medical interventions, and I do believe there's a time and a place for pain management as well. Right. So if a mom is not changing cervically and maybe her cervix is swollen and there's something going on, those four P's, one or two or more of those four P's are off and her body is so tight and so clenched and so contracted that her cervix can't melt and unfold. Then we're running the risk of going to a C-section, right? Because without progression over multiple, multiple hours, especially once a woman's water is broken, then we have to get the baby out at some point. And so an epidural would be a really great option for that candidate, like that person who maybe she's already been in labor for 42 hours. One of those four keys is off. She's not progressing. She's so tight and clenched, and now her body just can't open. Well, if she gets an epidural, her muscles relax. She's in a better headspace. Now she can take a two- or three-hour nap, and then her body can, you know, prepare for birth. Does that make sense? So there's a time and a place for everything. Yeah, and so is, would, a, would a midwife be able to do that, like, at the house, or, is it like, once you're getting to that stage, you're going to the hospital? Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It, it, you can yeah. only get an epidural at the hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm just kind of worrisome about like fentanyl or one of these drugs. Like now your baby's getting a little bit of hit of that. I don't know if it's enough to like cause a crazy amount of malfunction because it's just like one dose. It's not like the mom was addicted to opiates or fentanyl the whole pregnancy, yeah. but there's still a wary skeptical side of me that's like, all right, now your baby got a little dose of that. And it's so it's so malleable and so little. So like a small dose to use, mm-hmm. not a small dose to your baby. Right. And we see babies, um, you know, with women who use IV medications, we see babies come out a little bit more sleepy. Um, but the at, at the hospitals, the providers won't give you fentanyl or statol mm-hmm. if you're six years or over. So there's a lot of time for it to wear off before they're actually born. 
So again, they can they can engage in the pushing process and then they can be ready to um, to breastfeed. Yeah, as we're getting into this kind of the birthing aspect and some of the downfalls of the medicine, what what's your stance on like childhood vaccines? Are you cool with any of them? Are you anti all vaccines? How does that look for you? Um, so my professional answer to this is that I support families from all walks of life and I support families in whatever decision they choose to make about their bodies, their babies and their experience. And um I just make sure that they have the information and they make sure that they know their options and know their alternatives. In my personal preference, if I were to get pregnant and have babies again, my babies would not be vaccinated. Um, I don't receive the flu vaccine. I am not COVID vaccinated. I, that's my personal preferences and, and ways of life don't bleed over into my professional realm of support at all. I have a ton of clients who are non-vaxxers and I have a ton of clients who are. And as long as they know their options, they know, you know, that they could do delayed vaccines, for example. Um, and they are aware of what they're putting in their baby's body, then I support them in whichever decision they make. I truly stand in an unbiased perspective when supporting families on literally every decision. Um, as long as they, again, they have the information, they've done the research, they know their knowledge, and they know their alternatives. So if a mom is choosing to not breastfeed for whatever reason, I'm going to support her not breastfeeding as long as she knows what's going on. If she's choosing a hospital birth and choosing to get an epidural, I'm going to support that. But I want her to know that we need to find movement before the epidural. Why? Because we need the baby to get into position. If a mom's choosing, for example, to get the erythromycin and eye ointment, this is a really big one uh, because it's one of the, the procedure medications that's given to a baby. Erythromycin and eye ointment is a medication, it's an ointment that goes into the baby's eye. So they open the baby's eyes right after birth. They put the ointment in there. And um, traditionally, it was created to stop the spread of STDs from mom to baby. So my professional opinion is to support. My personal opinion is to say, hey, do you currently have an STD? Do you currently have GBS? No. Then one might think that your baby doesn't need antibiotics poured into their eyes, <laughs> right? And mm -hmm. if they choose to still use that, that's totally okay. And I'm not going to make them feel judged. I'm not going to blink an eye. I just want them to be informed and supported. And that's the best way to go about it, especially professional. And I'm all for people making their own decisions, too, as far as vaccinations and whatever. But I, the problem is I don't think uh, most parents even look into the ingredients or what they're actually doing. So then the kid's just getting, like you said, these random antibiotics, all these vaccines instantly at the same time. And I've also read a lot of, like, different opinions around vaccines and saying, like, if the kids actually caught some of these like viruses or diseases at a small age, they're less likely to have cancer and different uh, immune conditions as an adult and later in life because their immune system gets that boost from actually fighting off the infection. So I'm a little weary about vaccines and I follow a lot of Paul Check's work. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he's a big spiritual guru health guy and he, he says he can notice pattern differences and cognitive differences in like vaccinated versus unvaccinated and uh, as far as like childhood vaccines. So I'm a little skeptical about them. I just wanted to know your opinion. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's. It's it's almost like and I feel like we're because we're already on this journey of, of opening the door to all of the 
functional medicines, all the holistic practices to just doing your research, you know, finding your people that you follow and stand by. And I would say like the larger majority of the population is just not there yet. And that's okay. Right. And it took me a lot of unlearning and relearning and years of, of practicing different things. And I think honestly, my doula works helped open that door because I began to work with people and families that just had way different, you know, ways of living and thinking that I just was unfamiliar with at the very beginning of my journey. And now I'm like way on the other end, like, oh, everybody come over this way. But I can't, I can't actually, you know, say that. Um, and I, you know, can encourage new ways of life um, and new ways of thoughts and new ways of eating and living and, and, you know, what we put into our bodies. But it's hard when we are you know, as a society, we're bombarded with like all this content that's just not necessarily true. And what's even worse is that my whole background, educational background, and like my career path before doula work is in public health. And so we are literally, it's drilled in us, like protect the majority, or um, vaccinate the majority to protect the minority. It's like, that is a whole like public health pillars, a foundation. And so I get it on their end, on the public health end, on like the, you know, the people who choose vaccines. And then I also have ventured into this other way of life. And I see so many babies and families that are unvaccinated and their babies are totally fine. And it's just, you know, you find your balance, you find what works for you. And I support you either way. Yeah, that that's amazing. And that's all you really can do. And it's a slow grind to try to wake people up to like the, the newer yeah. health advice. And there's a lot of like, you know, you can find anything you want in the data, pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine. I mean, the science is pretty skewed in a lot of different ways as well. So it makes it a little bit more difficult for people. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we're running a little short on time. So I just had a few questions around uh, one last topic that I think is we should really squeeze in and that's around breastfeeding. So what do you um, feel the importance of breastfeeding is and Is there anything like a mother can do to kind of ensure that they make adequate breast milk for the baby? Yeah, definitely. So we know research has showed us time and time. And I mean, there's there's decades now of research that proves that breastfeeding is um, is the healthiest option for your baby. Um, And we want to encourage moms to breastfeed if they can and if they are are willing to Um, your Breast milk is specifically designed for your baby. And you, if you come into contact with the flu, then your breast milk is going to change and provide antibodies for the flu so that your baby doesn't get sick. Your breast milk changes as your baby grows and changes with your baby. It becomes more nutrient dense as the baby grows, um, more calorie rich because we know that as babies get older, they don't eat as long. They don't eat as much. So what they may have gotten in 30 minutes as a newborn might only happen in eight minutes as a four-month-old, right? And so our breast milk is unique, and it's full of antibodies. It's full of amino acids and fatty acids and all of these nutrients that your baby needs. And and sometimes breastfeeding doesn't work for a range of different reasons. And in that case, do your research around formula. Um, specifically around which types of formula. Um, there's goat's milk out there also, FYI, in formula. 
and uh, you know, you, you meet your body where it's at. And in terms of ensuring that women will make adequate milk, there's only a handful of reasons physiologically why women wouldn't be able to breastfeed. Um, and one of them is going to be any sort of like surgery that's happened to the breasts, um, anything that could have interfered with the actual milk ducts themselves being removed or cut into. Um, if moms have what we call tubular breasts where there's a structure issue that interferes with the milk ducts, outside of that, women can breastfeed and your body will make milk that your baby, the milk that your baby needs. And I feel like that's a misconception. People will say, well, yeah, I want to try to breastfeed. I just don't know if I'm going to be able to. I don't know if my body's going to make milk. And I want to encourage you and, you know, let you know, like, hey, your body will make milk. The way that breastfeeding works is this idea of supply and demand. The more you do it, the more the milk comes in. The more the milk comes in, the more you need to release your milk so that one, you feel better and two, your baby gets milk. And it is, um, it's natural. Your body knows what to do. So you can do things to supplement, uh, your, your milk, like with your nutrition plan and with, um, specific supplements that we will, you know, share with moms as they're breastfeeding, but ultimately just bringing to your breast, your baby to your breast as often as possible, reaching out to your doula or a lactation consultant for any help. If you are having some of those common breastfeeding issues, um, we know that breast milk helps reduce eczema, ear infections, childhood obesity, um, ADHD, like all sorts of things that, you know, breast milk can help reduce the likelihood of. So breast is, is recommended, but fed is best, right? Don't not feed your baby enough or adequately just because your breast milk is not, uh, your supply is low and you're not making enough, right? You don't want to strip your baby of the, the daily calories that they need. That makes total sense. And I am a little uh, worried because my wife did have breast implants, but she got them explanted by a really good doctor. So I wonder if any type of that surgical uh, procedure could maybe prohibit her from having. But I already know um, also a couple uh, good. I don't know if you recommend uh, Serenity Kids. Do you recommend that food and formula at all? Um, not not specifically that brand. Um I, that's that, that is a good one. It's not the one that I always go to. And now that you've asked, the the name is slipping my mind. There's a um a goat's milk formula from the UK that a lot of my families use, and they kind of swear by that one. And so I always suggest that one. And the name of it's slipping my mind. So I'll text it to you so that you can link it for the followers. Um, okay, that'll be cool. But definitely, you know, you got to be careful what you say. Definitely doing your research around Western American formula. Infamil, not like, good. good good start. Like just do just do your research. There are other they're overloaded there with other... lots of excess iron. They got seed oils in them. They have synthetic vitamins and nutrients. So the oh, two that, that I have landed on is yeah. kind of the, the My Serenity Kids seems legit. It's like an A2. Uh, product, but it is, it's cow's milk, but it's A2. And then also Mount Capra is a good one, but I think you have to buy like multiple different things and kind of blend them together. But it is a grass fed goat's milk, but I, I believe it's from the US, not the UK. So I'd be interested to look into the one that you sent me over as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you. And at the end of the day, you know, I say all of this very gently. And I also know that 
a woman's postpartum experience can be very, very overwhelming, right? And and so if you are needing to feed your baby in the middle of the night and you don't have UK goat's milk that's way more expensive than the US good good starter or info milk, do what you need to do in the moment to save your your space of peace and um to help help you overcome maybe a hard night. I, I want to be very, very gentle and empathetic and respectful of that. The postpartum journey is a lot. And there's a ton of products on the market, a ton of things that, um, you know, there's always the next best thing. And so just doing your research before the baby comes, before you're, you're um, burdened by just the, the, um, the postpartum transition it, it, it's heavy. It's, it, 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 your life changed overnight. You know, you, you walk into your birthing space as one woman and then you walk out as a completely different woman without having any time to mourn the loss of who you were before your baby. It all happens in one instant and there's no going back. And so setting yourself up ahead of time in regards to like what products you'll use for your baby, what, you know, formula will you have in the background just in case, those sorts of things. Having a lactation consultant already, a relationship with a, um, a lactation consultant already established, having your dual already established, those sorts of things will set you up for just a more positive trajectory for breastfeeding. That's awesome. So what is a lactation consultant? You find those separately and they kind of just give you a bunch of like mm -hmm. uh, tips and tricks about just producing breast milk and stuff like that? Yeah. So lactation consultants are people who like that is their specialty. Lactation is their specialty. They, that is their practice. They are practitioners over lactation. So they help with everything related to breastfeeding and feeding your baby. Uh, so not just milk production, but also latching issues. If there's palate issues with the babies, tongue ties, lip ties, if there's, um, if there's, you know, more, unique and difficult situations going on, they they kind of help address all of that. And they're trained and skilled and, and you know, do certifications to do so. Do you guys usually have ones that you like recommend as well that mm -hmm. you've already sent people to? So yeah, it, it sounds like once you get the a good midwife and a doula, they have obviously all the other resources usually right there for you. And then yeah. you just kind of find what fits for you. Exactly. Someone I was at, a, I sat on a panel like two weekends ago at a local chiropractic's office. And um, one of the ladies there was like, it sounds like you're like the wedding planner. They, they, they pick you and then you know exactly who to go to and what to do and what resources to use and what companies to use. And I was like, that's a really great way to put it. The, the wedding planner, the one who just like is interconnected to all of the resources and all of the people. Yeah, it's critical when you're doing this. Uh, well, it's kind of called like a new way of people looking, but really it's like the ancestral way, really. But it's kind of this new whole birthing process that people are getting into. And they're, they can spend hours and hours of research or they can kind of lean on you guys and get some resources out of it. And uh, I forgot about this question. It's probably an important one that I know I'm going to get questions about if we don't uh, just address it real quick at the end. About how much does it cost? for someone to have a home birth between the midwife and the doula and the setup and everything. Yeah. So doulas are anywhere between like a, a quality doula. Let me start over <laughs> a quality seasoned experienced doula is anywhere between like 1700 and like $3,000. Um, usually doulas will allow 
families to make payment plans and they have different packages depending on what the family is looking for and to help meet the family's needs. Um, home birth midwives can be anywhere between like $4,000 and like $12,000. It just really depends on, on whether or not they do partial supplementation with insurance, whether or not they take insurance. Um, one of the things that I didn't mention earlier that I think is important to mention is, is that your home birth midwife is your prenatal practitioner. Like they come rather than you going to a prenatal appointment, they come to your house and do your prenatal appointment. They draw your labs. They send off your blood work. They, if you need an ultrasound for whatever reason, they send you to that place. But like they come to you and they do everything that everything that you would get done at like a regular OBGYN office as a pregnant woman, the midwife does in your home. Um, and so you're paying for that whole experience, just like you might pay multiple co-payments at a, you know, at a prenatal visit with your OBGYN. And a lot of the local midwives that I uh, work closely with, they also offer payment plans and payment options. Yeah, that makes sense. So it sounds like it's around like seven grand for quality on the low end up to possibly like 15 grand. But then with yeah. the midwife, since they're medical, you could do some research on the front end and see like what type of insurance they take or if your insurance is compatible and things like that. So you can reduce some of that as well. Exactly. And a good middle ground is like if you if you're saying, oh, my goodness, I really want to have an out of birth um, an out of hospital birth experience and home birth might be just above my budget. Um, but I definitely don't want to be in the hospital. Then the birthing centers are a good middle ground because the birthing centers typically take way more insurance plans. And mm -hmm. so it's still unmedicated. It's still outside of the hospital. Like, yes, you still have to technically go to a facility, but the rooms are set up to look like bedrooms. It's a nice, it's a nice middle ground, both financially and if women have partners who are like, you want to do a home birth? What? Um, the birthing center is like a very good compromise where it's not a hospital, but it's not a home birth. It's right in the middle. Oh, so I'll have to look into that. And maybe financially for some people, if insurance is going to cover that portion, then they can just do a exactly. payment plan for a doula on the side. Maybe that would maybe be more reasonable for them. And it makes sense that since it is a facility, the insurance will help cover that instead of just you having someone in your house. It makes a lot of sense. Right. Exactly. And then you probably, yeah. I've seen you tag some birthing centers like in St. Pete and stuff. So I'm sure you already have ones you recommend as well. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately our, um, it, it really breaks my heart, but our birthing community here is changing a lot. And our beloved St. Pete birthing center is technically closing um, this month, uh -huh. December. And, so we are limited to in the Tampa Bay area all around. We only have three birthing centers now. Um, and I'm just praying that the birthing community comes together and we open up a new center, um, but definitely have suggestions and recommendations for people. Yeah, interesting. Cool. Well, I think we got through most of what I had uh, listed on here as far as I can think of. Do you have any like last minute thoughts or anything you want to share with people um, that we didn't cover? I think one of the things that comes to mind when I am just talking about birthing and birthing stories and birthing spaces is, you know, be protective over your body, over your ears, over the things that you choose to watch. Um, people, random people at the grocery store, at the gas station, like random people 
will see a pregnant woman, one, want to touch her belly, and two, they want to share birthing experiences. And typically, the people who share birthing experiences had a negative um, experience. And I feel like I wish I could like put on a billboard, like don't share negative birthing experiences. We don't want to sprinkle fear into someone's space. Right. And so just, you know, families being, being mindful of who you listen to and what you listen to. And this also goes for your family members, even if your best friend or your sister or your aunt wants to share their birthing experience. If it doesn't look like the way you want yours to look like, just politely say, like, I'd rather listen to that when, when I'm finished, like, with my pregnancy after we have the baby. Uh, because when you, you know, you're, you're pregnant for 10 months and you hear a lot of things and you're already doing your own mm-hmm. research and you're trying to avoid certain, you know, occurrences from happening. And so just be protective over your body, over your space, over your baby. And also lean into your intuition. You always, always have the answer within. Intuitively, we know what our bodies need and what our babies need. And the moment that we finally tap into that intuition is like the moment we're rebirthed and we can do what our bodies were created to do. That was beautifully said. So I think we'll end it there. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you if they want to use you as a doula or just check out your Instagram page. Uh, let them know where they can find all your info. Yeah. Yeah. So right now my Instagram page is the best way to uh, reach me. It is at breathing through life, Tampa Bay. Uh, make sure you put Tampa Bay on the end because apparently there's someone else breathing through life who has an inactive page and they won't use it. Um, so at breathing through life, Tampa Bay, I cover the entire Tampa Bay area. So I serve families all the way down from the Sarasota area, all the way up to like, like North Tampa, Wesley Chapel, Wesley Chapel, uh, Zephyr Hills, Lutz, um, and everybody in between. And so, uh, if you're interested, you can reach out. I can shoot you a text and an email and such, and we can start, start a relationship. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all your wisdom. Yeah, uh, we'll be in touch once we get closer to making that decision. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for, um, for just sharing with your audience this, this realm. Uh, not very many people want to talk about birth and, and, you know, the, the process of unmedicated natural home births. And so it's a pleasure to be here, a pleasure to share my experience. And I'm, I'm looking forward to connecting and, and reconnecting soon. Absolutely. Have fun. I know you got to get over to a, a birth right now, right? <laughs> hey. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you got to get your masha tea, tea ready and your, your uh, bag of goodies. <laughs> exactly. Bag of good, goodies, matcha tea, a good sweet potato. We're gonna, we're in there. <laughs> All right. Well, good luck. And like I said, I honor you for your commitment to uh, this path and the crazy schedule you have. So uh, have a blessed day and good luck. Thank you so much. You too. Bye. Bye. If you enjoy this show, would you please take a second to subscribe, rate, and review it for me? Also, if you'd like to know more information about Combo, personalized one-on-one coaching with me, or for upcoming retreat information, which I host with my wife, please visit my website in the show notes or DM me on Instagram. My handle over there is at Integrative Matt. Until next time, my friends.